0: Good morning. I'm your host Claudia Shambaugh, with laser-like focus on my ballot, my private parts, all of my neighbors, and my planet. Welcoming you to the July 10, 20 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, Olivia Fu returns and brings with her Samantha Newman, former co-editors of The Express at San Juan Hills High School. And they received a little ink in a recent New York Times article about the journalistic muscle they exerted. They'll make some radio waves on this program talking about sex, guns, politics, and censorship. In the second segment, Michael Saavedra, former detainee at the Pelican Bay Prison, spent twelve consecutive years in solitary confinement. He presents a study in resilience as well one of the struggle following his release February twenty seventeen. His appearance originally scheduled with UCI scholar Kermit Ryder was deferred last February. He will offer his own story about his detention, his studies, his activism, and his career plans. We'll be right back after a short one. Welcome back to the show, everybody. July 1st. The New York Times uh, led with a remarkable coverage of my two guests, Samantha Newman and Olivia Fu, co-editors of San Juan Hills High School's newspaper, The Express. The article included also editors of high school newspapers around the country. We get to spend some time with Olivia and Samantha today. They are recently, both of them, graduated seniors from San Juan Hills High School. Sam, born in Valencia, was raised in Orange County, is going to be attending St. Mary's College of California in the fall. She plans to major in English and work in publishing. Hmm. As an activist for social justice, she was the vice president of the, I'm going to say FOM club, you can tell me a FEM club later, and a member of Young Democrats Club. Olivia Fu grew up in Southern California and has cared about politics for as long as she can remember. She was an intern on a 49th Congressional District campaign. I think she may still be on that. That campaign is still going. Olivia has organized students over two student walkouts for their school as well as a registered at least one or two, to vote campaign and candidate forum or more. Olivia will be heading this fall for Stanford. These young ladies come to us today from San Juan Capistrano. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Samantha Newman, and welcome back, Olivia Food.
1: Hi, Claudia. Thank you so much for having us. Hi, this is Sam.
0: Okay, we've we got little voice prints. We'll do that for a few more times so everybody knows. There you go. So about... The Express, and congratulations on getting that coverage. That that was really, it was a huge article um, about the Express at San Juan Hills. Tell us about, let's get an idea about the composition of the Express's staff, the the demographics, the political perspectives, the gender identities, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, well, we are fortunate we have a fairly uh, diverse staff um, in terms of uh, grade levels and uh, political perspectives. Um, we, Our editorial board tends to lend, uh, lean a little more to the left, but we still have some pretty strong, um, really intelligently like, conservative voices who were um, among our staff. Uh, we had all four uh, class levels last year, freshmen through seniors. Um, I think probably had a little more females, right, Sam, than we had males on the staff, but um, pretty encompassing of our school's demographics, I think.
0: And let's say gender fluidity. I mean, how would they identify it as um, cis females, or how does that work? Yes, I believe that
1: everyone on our staff was cis last year.
0: Okay. So, and your. Tell us your own roles. I don't know how long you've been with the Express, both of you. I didn't cover that in the introduction. So tell us a little bit about how you stepped up as editors, what your role's been as long as you've been affiliated with, you were affiliated with the Express. Um.
2: So I've been, I was on the Samantha. Express um, staff for three years. And during, we both were for three years. And then during my junior year, I was the opinion editor. And then um, obviously during my senior year, we were co-editors in chief.
1: Yeah, um, same with, Sam, I, we were both on the staff since our sophomore year. Um, I was newest editor junior year and then uh, we sort of decided that we would rather just be co-editors in chief our senior year, so sort of just happened naturally. I mean, if we were the ones who were, like, longest on the staff who had been in, like, senior editor role, but um, I think mostly we would help, like, direct the brainstorming sessions for what content we needed to do. Um, we would, like, decide which stories go on print and online and edit the stories and typical editor stuff.
0: With, uh, with Bill Kaiser looking over your shoulder a little bit off and on? Um,
1: in a way. He didn't – he would have uh, in ideas and, like, inspiration for content, but he never, like, regulated or told us what not to write about or – really like what to write about he's always there just for more suggestion and guidance rather than constantly looking over our shoulders okay
0: well let's talk about your articles how they were developed maybe what became of particular ones before we get into the ones about um, the piece that the New York Times covered so what did your readers make of your reporting of what you are, and what you were editing out of the paper um, you mean, so not the center spread, or not yes? This, not this, or ch- the, though generally leading up to when we talk about relationships. Prior to that, how were you developing your articles? Uh, what role did your readers have in your, what content you're deciding on and their reactions? I mean, there must were there ways that they could sort of, they must have used social media to comment about your articles that you reported?
2: Well, because of just, like, because we're a student-run paper and we have to fund ourselves through, like, fundraising, we're generally, um, like, an online paper because print is obviously more expensive. So we would have most of our readership online, and then we would try to, um, like, boost that as much as we can through, like, social media and, um, like, emailing it to different teachers so that their students are made aware of, like, the content being published, and then um, when we would ever have like special content that we really wanted to push out or if it was especially timely, then we would um, pay for a print edition and we would make that super special. And so that's why we work super hard on it mm-hmm. and make it the best content that we have. Like we did
0: with the special report with that one. And so but your readers, do they do they comment on your article? So you've got a bit of a feedback loop about what their reactions are. Yeah, uh,
1: definitely. We get comments on the articles on our webs. And then, as well as, like Sam said, we're blasting it out on social media. We get comments on the photos on Instagram and such.
0: Okay, well, right there on your website, it states, quote, its content is the re- sole responsibility of the Express staff, end of quote. Now, let's move into tell us about the five story piece, Relationship and Sex. It's covering five anonymous stories featuring personal experience of students from diverse backgrounds and diverse relationships and sexual experiences. Each of the individual titles were Long Term, Waiting Until Marriage, Gay, Pregnancy Scare, and Bisexual. Tell us about putting that piece together. Um, so we'd actually started
1: brainstorming this particular center spread uh, two years ago with our previous editor-in-chief. This was something that like, she had the idea for and wanted to do, but we ended up running out of time. Um, that school year, so we, Sam and I, sort of like kept the idea in the back of our minds and like, waited till we felt like it would be appropriate timing to like release the articles. So it was a project that was like in the process for a really long time, um, and then we came up with. We knew from the start that we wanted to have a diverse perspectives. We wanted to try and show the uh, like wide range of experiences that high schoolers had in um, relationships. So we knew we needed to get people from different backgrounds. We knew we needed to be LGBTQ inclusive um, and have, if we're going to talk about students who are having sex, also have to talk about students who are not. So, like, from the start, we knew that we were going to try to do, like, something diverse. But, uh, of course, like, we didn't really know who we were going to be able to interview and who would open up and, like, what their exact experiences were until uh, we talked to them. And it, it, it was Uh, Kind of difficult, I think, to, like, find people to open up about those experiences. So the different perspectives that we had particularly shifted uh, as we found people to talk to us.
0: And who is a big thing? Who is... uh me how they how they were presenting their case i mean they could be necessarily i even though they're anonymously uh you know referred to in each of these articles maybe they felt like that they could be recognized but it's the, the who was a big deal and so but eventually five who's <laughs> showed up in uh being interviewed and developing the stories
2: yeah and we tried not to include like super specific details like about their experiences like when we were explaining, like, their backgrounds of, like, when, like, say, for instance, like, the abstinence couple, like, when they, wet, they met, we tried not to include, like, super specific details so that, like, say their peers were reading it. They weren't like, oh, hey, that's blah, blah, blah. So we tried to keep it anonymous to a point where some people could relate, but also, like, it is true to someone's story. Okay.
0: Well, where um, let's talk about how did it all go south when the principal contacted Child Protective Services first, and then wanted to sort and then sent out the uh, letter to parents? Or how? Tell us about what ensued once the the issue went out. And this was the printed one, as you were saying. So, what happened? Mm-hmm.
1: So the timeline was that the print edition came out on uh, Monday, March twelfth, and um, there after the print edition that. Not that day, students took home some of the papers and showed it to their parents, of which uh, there's a few like social media, Facebook groups of. Um, like I say, some fairly like conservative parents in the community who they were taking pictures of the print edition and being like, "Look at this like garbage that was printed. Like, how is this acceptable? It's disgusting." And that night, people whose parents are friends, whose parents maybe were in the group, were texting us pictures and like screenshots of everything that was happening. And then the next day, our advisor was called to the district and put on administrative leave, and that morning, that Tuesday morning, and we stopped having contact with him, and then around like 2 p.m. on Tuesday is when she published the letter, uh, published, she emailed um, the letter to all the parents. Like condemning the paper, calling it sensationalistic and like bad journalism, everything. And then from there, that's when um, all of the other incidents happened. The being called and interrogated by human resources, then uh, her calling child protective services. All of that happened after the email and after our response, because um, I think she expected us to just back down.
2: Yeah. So, so after we sent that email to her, um, our editorial board gathered. It's about eleven people, and we drafted. Um, an open letter to her, which we published online and as well sent to her, obviously. And then um, after that, as we were trying to make a meeting with her that week, which was unsuccessful until the end of the week, um, we worked on publishing other stories, like one that contained positive um, feedback from students and parents that we published that um, they actually emailed to our principal that never got a response. And then another story about um, where we re-interviewed the anonymous um, features and kind of um, got their opinion of how they felt with her response, and that was also published online.
0: So there's a, there's a sort of a there are a lot of cultural elements in play here and and institutions. Uh, I I understand the the kind of political dynamics in the San Juan Hills, the South County area a little bit, um, and I know there's a parental culture about being very protective of hovering and all that kind of a thing. I, I mean. D- is this did you see this a little bit of the reaction you got as a being as infantilizing mature high school students a little to some extent the reaction from the parents at least for me was not unexpected
1: like i that was pretty i think typical maybe it was sort of, like, condescending and infantilizing, but we're so, like, used to it in this <laughs> culture that I, I didn't really think twice of the parent reaction. And we knew we were writing something controversial um, and that it would it would get a controversial reaction. What really took us by surprise is the fact that um, our principal had that and our administration um, took a stance on it when, like, clearly it violated our free press rights.
0: So the earlier rattlings, um, were there... Any indications? I mean, you said you knew it was controversial, but did you? You you were surprised, though, otherwise by what your principal's reaction was. There, there wasn't any kind of early rattling. So, oh well, we're gonna we're gonna hamper down here with uh, get pushing out this, this publication.
2: Um, Well, actually, we would kind of had, like, a tough year with our administration because we'd published some other articles, like we published an article about um, concussions that was, um, like, a national study that had come out about CTE, and we had interviewed some of our football team and talked about concussions, and it had garnered a response from our administration and our football team, the coaches, and... um, they had asked us to, like, change details in that story. Or take it down? Yeah, and to wow. take it down, and we obviously didn't take it down. We adjusted a few lines to make it better in their eyes. And then we faced another incident later with a story that we
1: did about, like, the Disney, like, Imagineer who came and visited, in which, like, there were, again, like, minuscule details that uh, were, like, not even incorrect, but just, like, not exactly what the principal perceived and where she, again, like, asked us to change the story or took it down, which we hadn't really had many experiences with before.
0: So I'm thinking there's a lot of irony, just uh, moving away from the Disney Imagineering article, but the ones about the article you published about concussions and CTE, that I don't know if there was a mandatory reporting requirement that kicked in the child protective services you know follow up but you, here you are the irony is here you are trying to have people reconsider their involvement in a not benign sport football you're tr- that that's the public health thing but then <laughs> so back with the public health uh, we got to protect our kids from what might be considered abusive you know, kind of behavior that was expressed. What was it in the the bisexual article? So, or yeah, or the gay article. So the, it was the gay article. Did that irony come out?
1: Um, I mean, I, I guess yes, definitely it came out. First of all, she uh, when uh, the principal was speaking with our reporter, the one who wrote the gay and bi article, she tried to convince her that she needed to report it. When students are not mandated reporters, um, and even so, like. There were no, in the gay article, um, it's like the way she construed it was like, oh, for sure, like if this teenager was having like sex with adults in like a motel room or was what she had said. But in fact, like not, we never learned the age of the people like, like he mentioned in the article. Um, but it would seem from the fact that the parents walked in that it was under the parent's name. So beyond that, there was never, like, a direct mention of abuse. And the fact that they were anonymous, like, you can't really make anonymous calls to Child Protective Services. No. And, like, just it, it seems, I guess, like, funny or ironic to think that uh, you'd be a mandated reporter if, every time that a teenager had sex. Like, imagine if teachers had to report every single time that they overheard students talking about, like, their personal lives.
0: Crying so. crying sex in the theater, not fire. <laughs> it's too many yeah. times. Cry- well, for those of you, I hasten to say, for those of you just, just joined us, my guests are Olivia Fu and Samantha Newman. They were co-editors of San Juan Hills High School's newspaper, The Express, which was taken to task by their administration for their publishing a five-story piece, relationships and sex. It was covered in the New York Times. That's how I got in didn't hear from olivia about this until i had to wait till new york times told me so i've got to work out our relationship (laughs) so what are some of the key journalistic lessons you know in ethics and tactics that you took from this experience ladies i would say
2: although like we do talk about ethics a lot in our class and like what our rights are um already like before even this incident had happened i would think it's just um for us especially working in the media and newsprint really to just know your rights and to what we can and can't do. And I think in this situation, like, we knew everything that we had the right to, and so that was why maybe it was so surprising for us. And really it was just, um, I still would say, like, in more terms of ethics, like, we really learned that, like, we were trying to just tell the honest stories of five individuals that we thought our high school could relate to, and obviously probably more high schoolers around the country. Um, and it was really just we had to keep that truth and know that those experiences were unique enough that we had the right to tell them.
0: So tell us then the Student Press Law Center, which provides legal help to high school and college journalists, was that a resource upon which you drew as co-editors of the Express?
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, Our advisor had talked uh, quite like, frequently about the Student Press Law Center as a resource throughout the year. It was even in our um, staff manual. So when this all went down, like, immediately I had had contact with the guy, uh, Mike Heisand, before uh, with a different issue that we had. Oh, But okay. um, I reached out to him again, and they were extremely helpful um, in providing us. Like, we had many calls with them about, like, uh, if what they, the administration did, like, that definitely violated our rights, what the next steps could be. And then, after the whole thing went down, uh, they invited us to do a webinar um, oh. for for them about uh, the our confronting censorship and our administrator being put on leave because we didn 't really involve him in the process, and that is Like the 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 student press law center people said was like that's the best thing to do in that circumstance is to have the students take the lead. Um, So it was actually that webinar that the journalist from the New York Times watched, and uh, that's how she got into contact with us. So they've definitely been an incredible resource. Um, The ACLU also, uh, we had an attorney from the ACLU who reached out and uh, helped us with like legal advice and. Uh, came and talked to us about what we could do and all that.
0: And it's not like ACLU didn't was waiting for the phone to ring. They've had a few cases go before them this year. Yeah, they've been pretty busy. Yeah, so that's that is that's really quite remarkable. Well, I mean, sort of geographically, where are they centered? Where is the Student Press Law Center? Just so I have an idea how remotely this all went down, too. Um, I believe New York. In New York, okay, all right. Well, that, we've been hearing mostly from Olivia. Am I correct? So we got to give. I don't want to talk over the next question of Samantha. Did you have some some things to contribute
2: um, about no, your say, tactics like we, and ethics? Yeah, we did um, get. We got in contact with the Student Press Law, Law Center, but the ACLU kind of found us um, after oh. I think someone um, anonymously contacted them, or not anonymous anonymously. I'm not sure, but yeah, that's basically the situation that happened.
0: Okay. Well. Then in preparation for this interview, you brought to my attention the California Healthy Youth Act was enacted in 2016 in reaction to California's, quote, poor health outcomes. That was in an education uh, superintendent of California statewide um, appraisal, poor health outcomes. It's something to consider in who's keeping safe here. Was that some kind of content that you addressed in the Express?
1: We actually didn't, and that was something that we weren't aware of. The fact that I mean, this the newest law I think came out in like 2018, like April, like uh, around the same time that our articles came out, and that's when like they coincided in timing with like the big debate within our district and everything. Okay. Um, and we were completely unaware of it until after the whole. Um, the whole like thing went down. We went and spoke at a board meeting, and there were teachers who were talking about um, how they needed to be implementing this curriculum, but they weren't and how important it was. Um, and then our paper was being used on both sides of the debate as to wow. uh, whether or not the district should uh, really – Partaken this well, I mean, the, the new law, because the people who were um, against the more comprehensive sexual health education were saying, like, look at what all these, like, dangerous things teenagers are doing, and the ones who were in favor of it was like, no, look, this just shows that teenagers are wanting to have these conversations, that they want to be educated, um, and that they feel like their school system is, like, failing them. So... That, that was something that we weren't really aware of until after we wrote the article.
0: How did the district settle that situation then with how they'll implement the codified California Healthy Youth Act?
1: Um, well, it's still an issue that is ongoing. Okay. They formed a committee to determine, because uh, they're sort of deciding what parts that they want to implement and what parts... They feel like they don't have to, or and don't want to, um, and a committee seems, from what I've, I've talked to a couple of our board members, um, and they're saying that it's like it's very divided right now, like very factioned, with the uh, like some faith-based members who are trying to push the more abstinence-only, and then the um, other members who are, are trying to like push the full um, act and like the curriculum there. So it's still like very de- like hotly debated right now, and there's a lot of conflict. Um, and I think they're even reaching out to like other districts and telling them to like hold off on implementing the curriculum because they're like going to find a loophole or something like that.
0: I'm not wow, that you found the sweet spot. You found the journalistic sweet spot in your coverage. I, I know, I know. It's got to be a sort of life. Life sort of affirming, changing, developing there. So do you have a connection with other journalists in other high schools who've been dealing with these kinds of situations around the country?
2: Um, I would say after the New York Times article was published, I actually reached out to the girl who is um, in Texas, who right. her journalism advisor was fired after some of their articles were published and who um, a lot of her articles have been taken down because of the controversial nature and i mean i would say she's trying to work on getting the new voices act passed in texas which would allow more um, like freedom from censorship and just like um, more free speech which is different because we do have that law already passed so it's like right. kind of like two, seeing two different scopes of this like censorship side, I would say. But I haven't really been in contact with very many other journalism.
0: So how do the two of you respond to the current administration in the White House, the attack on free press and lines that are crossed there?
1: I think that, I mean, it's, in my opinion, like, the most dangerous thing about this administration that this administration has done has been the attack on the free press on, like, constantly, like, trying to diminish the work of these journalists who are, like, doing their very best to, like, be honest in these, like, difficult times. Um, I think that it's, I don't know, for me, I see it as, like, the biggest threat to our democracy at the moment, and I think it's a very serious issue that we need to, like, recognize and be sure that we're
0: protecting our press. That's Olivia, correct? Yes. Samantha?
1: Yeah,
2: I would just say it's really startling, especially to hear um, our own, like, leader just attack things that are true, and then just kind of, like, demonizing press and the media, and, I mean, I guess, like, it's kind of, like, a parallel because. Um, Like, the president is supposed to be someone that, like, our nation can trust and who is supposed to be, like, working for us. And then, like, the same thing kind of happened in our school where, like, someone we're supposed to trust kind of betrayed us. So it's kind of like I almost want to keep, like, a sharp eye of, like, anytime someone mentions the media, I'm like, oh, no, what's happening? Like, hopefully it's the right thing.
0: Well, you know what? In my opening, I should have said a laser-like focus on my column inches. So I think I'll, I'll add that because I'm from now on, I'm going to say that every opener. So in a lightning round, I want to find out these things from you as we close. Are you going to miss the camaraderie of this group there at the Express? Is journalism going to figure into any of your future plans and, uh, or uh, any extracurriculars or your course of studies or your career?
1: Um, Do you want us to go, like, I'll answer them and then Sam answers them? Boom, boom,
0: boom. Yeah, this is Olivia, right?
1: This is Olivia. Okay, so I will definitely 100% miss the camaraderie of this group. This really brought us uh, closer together, um, sort of made us a family, and I feel like the rest of our editorial staff isn't getting the credit that they deserve in this. Like, we would not have been able to do this alone. They were super important. They were all incredible and uh, did so much work. Um, I'm not really sure if journalism is going to figure into my future plans, but I do hope to continue writing for my school. Newspaper when I go to college as an extracurricular.
0: That's Olivia. Samantha. I mean, we mentioned your in your introduction that you're going to go into some letters. But tell us of the same. Uh, answer the same questions about the camaraderie, of the group, and as much as you can specifically talk to journalism, figuring in your future plans and your career studies.
2: Um, I would say about the camaraderie, we're definitely, like, a super big family, like, over at Newspaper. Like, we have been for years because we kind of, like, go through tough things together. And I would say especially this year, like, we all have, like, inside jokes and we're all, like, texting about things all the time. And, like, whenever we see articles, like, we're sending them to each other. And it's, like, super fun because we all know, like, what we've been through and we all, like, like, super trust each other. And I would say for, like, next year, like, our editorial staff is going to be, like, So much, like, they're going to be even better than this year, and I know that they're going to do even greater things. And then I would just say, I guess, for my future in um, journalism, I definitely plan to work on my um, newspaper at my school. Um, I do want to work in publishing um, for books, but I would definitely be open to, like, editing or even journalism, like, if that comes into my path.
0: Okay. Well, I, that's all the time we have. I want to thank Olivia Fu and Samantha Newman, co-editors of The Express at San Juan Hills. For at, at the newspaper, The Express, I know, we know Kate Finman, who's been on the Ask a Leader along with Olivia Fu. She's one of those uh, reporters that, that gets credit for all this. And so thank you for this time today, ladies and Best of luck on your upcoming (laughs) academic and other pursuits. Thanks for rolling this interview on such short notice. Thank you so much, ladies. Thank Thank you. you. All right. Stay tuned for my next guest, Michael Saavedra. Saavedra. He is a former detained in solitary confinement at Pelican Bay Prison, and he's busy continuing his legal studies and activism since his 2017 release. We'll be right back in a moment. Thank you for staying tuned. My next guest is Michael Saavedra. He is formerly a detainee at Pelican Bay Prison. He spent 12 consecutive years in solitary confinement, which is going to be one of the main topics of our conversation together, touching on many elements. Michael was originally scheduled to appear with Karamet Ryder. She is a scholar at uh, with joint appointments at UCI, and she recently published a book on solitary confinement. She opens her book with, and I quote, to anyone who has lived or worked inside an American prison. And Michael is one of those people. Uh, he was released, as I've said, from California Department of Corrections on February 22nd, 2017, after spending some 19 years in prison. And as I said, the last 12 of those 19 years in solitary confinement, consecutive years, just everybody let that sink in. Wherein, and we're going to pay special attention, he participated in all of the group hunger strikes, learned the law, and successfully litigated himself several lawsuits against the department, or that is the California Department of Corrections, for his unjust and inhuman main treatment. Michael, now, I'm not sure if you're 48 years. You were 47 when we were originally preparing this. Are you now 48? Yes. Is currently involved in several community organizations, which we're going to talk about, supporting and assisting the incarcerated and formerly incarcerated population. He is a Riverside City College student at a UCLA Beyond the Bars fellow, a paralegal and a youth mentor at La Cosa in East Los Angeles. So he comes to us today from Riverside, and I'm so glad he's back, and he's repairing from a, a very a severe motorcycle accident, repairing from those injuries that prevented him from appearing with in our on our February 26th show. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Michael Saavedra. Thank you. So you give us... And I I really respect how different a world you dwelled in. And I respectfully want to take every opportunity for us to understand what the decision we make as a society to go down a punitive versus a rehabilitation path in how we deal with those that are incarcerated. So uh, what... Were some of the aspects of your moving into what's called, SHU, its the security housing unit at Pelican Bay and Corkran—for our better understanding, if that's even possible, we can understand.
3: Well, it's like it's like a prison within a prison. So most of this is done. Um, I would say, like the public isn't really aware of the type of confinement that goes on within the prison, the type of abuse, and the type of um, just overall conditions of our confinement. Um, This prison system is set up so that the lower levels have more freedom, more opportunity, more resources. But the more time you have, the higher level you're put in. It starts from level one all the way to level four. And within those prisons, there is what they call administrative segregation, in which, for any type of reasons, a fight, assault on staff, um, possession of drugs, or in my case and many other cases, um, what they call an association with a prison gang. You don't even have to be a part of the gang, but if they claim that you are an associate of the gang, they can put you in the administrative segregation unit and then eventually approve it, rubber stamp actually, and then send you off to Pelican Bay or Corkland Shoe indefinitely. So, uh, so I- and this, this can be based on signing a birthday card from a fellow prisoner, um, having a book in your cell that belongs to another prisoner who is validated as a prison gang member or an associate, um, certain types of artwork, tattoos, literature, things of that nature that are very innocuous. And it's very, um, it's, it's very discriminatory because a person on the general population can actually stab or assault a staff member and only do three to four years in solitary confinement as a punishment. However, somebody that's validated as an associate or a member as a, of a prison gang will be kept in there for at least a minimum of six years to your review, having conducted no disciplinary infraction, having committed no violence against anybody, but for simply having those type of items that I mentioned previously.
0: Well, I think for listeners who are are following what you're saying and how you're presenting yourself, let's be very clear, everyone. Michael's resilience amidst the open-ended, indeterminate sentence that put him in a subset of a much larger group there that were damaged or affected by solitary confinement. So I want people to hear how Michael's putting together this life, engaging himself, and um, I. I want. I guess I when we were preparing a bit f- about this interview, and you talked about there's there's yes there's there's resilience that you demonstrate, but there is. And our punitive measures by subjecting somebody to so many years of solitary confinement, detention there, that it, it does really affect you in your everyday life right now, right where you are.
3: Hmm. Well, I would say for well, myself, speaking for myself, um, it depends on the individual. Some people are very strong-willed, strong-minded. Other people are not so strong. And this is what the whole process is about. Um, They want to break you so that you will, what they call, debrief. So you could be sentenced to solitary confinement indefinitely. However, and they often offer you this every six months, they'll come to you and say, are you willing to debrief? Meaning uh, incriminate yourself and incriminate others and divulge information that you may or even may not know, um, in order to get out of solitary confinement, um, basically becoming a snitch, um, which they really don't care because you and I know, and most of the public knows that people who do that end up putting not only themselves in danger, but also their families at risk for retaliation. So they have no qualms about asking you to become a snitch and um, putting your life at risk. So this is part of the whole, you know, taking away your property, leaving you with minimal amount of things and and freedom within the solitary confinement setting um, so that you will eventually break and say, okay, I'm I'm willing to, to debrief, I'm willing to snitch, let me out. Um, but for those of us who who remain steadfast and, and refuse to do that even some people who don't even know anything about the gang therefore how can they give you information that they don't know of
0: right they um,
3: catch. let alone put themselves at risk for danger um, So it is it is a tactic um, initially and there were was Senate committee hearings there's a lot of research done um, so the old, Uh, saying the maximum was, you know, snitch, parole, or die. That's the only way you're getting out of solitary confinement. So if you have a life sentence and you're committed to the shoe indefinitely, you will more than likely, unless you snitch, parole, or die, spend the rest of your life in solitary confinement.
0: So maybe you weren't broken in solitary, but you were affected. How does that affect you right now?
3: Well, for me, um, I was fortunate enough. um, I did spend 12 years straight in solitary, and most of the time I just put my mind because I felt that I was wrongfully placed in there um, and that I wasn't an associate or a member of a gang and that the things that they use, I was like, how can they do this to somebody? So I started studying the law and doing research. I would sign up for the law library, it was also a chance to get out of the cell, um, and I just started reading case law after case law and discovering how prisoners before myself and others back in like the 70s when um, there was a lot of uh, movement and people were pushing for civil rights, um, there was a thing that is called due process, right, that right. they're supposed to give you, and um, this whole uh, validation process really lacks due process. Um you're not allowed to confront your accuser. you're not allowed to bring witnesses. It's basically rubber stamping um, whatever the investigators, the prison investigators say that you are. Um, so for me, um, that began a process i I've never um, I never went to high school. I was expelled from junior high, so I didn't have any type of formal education. but while I was there, I just wanted to I, I really wanted to read a lot because Just sitting in the cell all day staring at four four walls all day was very boring. So I used to read a lot of books and um, take my mind out of that place and just started learning more and more and educating myself. So for me, it was a way to kind of escape the um, the oppression or the depression that comes with being locked up by yourself and um, with lack of any type of communication with other human beings. So I pretty much put myself into uh that type of mindset of just reading and then I began drawing, doing artwork, which also helped me escape um from it. But towards the end, after the hunger strikes and when the lawyers came and um um took on the case as a class action and, and filed the lawsuit, um, in Ashner versus Brown. Um I was able to get out of solitary confinement through that case um, settlement, through the lawsuit settlement. And prior to my release from prison, I was able to spend a few months in the general population where I got to be around other human beings finally after 12 years and and be able to have human contact and things of that nature. So that kind of like gave me a bit of transition. However, coming back out, I mean, after spending that much time, almost two decades in prison, um, when I went into prison, it was like 1998. When the last time I was out here in the free world, and back then they didn't have cell phones, they didn't have computers. weren't as prevalent unless you were, like had a lot of money or you know um, were a doctor or something. So coming out to the today's technology was really um, really difficult because I didn't know how to operate a computer being in solitary confinement i wasn't able to take any type of courses there wasn't any type of uh, education programs for us that would prepare us and get us ready to reenter society after that long and just those type of things those skills that are needed um, also not communicating and, and being able to talk with people for so long um, i felt that i feel that i fell behind socially um mm-hmm. I would use the analogy of taking somebody right now and putting you inside a bubble, putting you in outer space for 20 years, and then after 20 years, bringing that bubble back down to Earth and then releasing you. So all your fondest memories of your social activities, of your friendships, of everything is going to be from 20 years ago. Now, I was fairly young back then, 26, 27, and um, so... I believe as humans, we need social interaction as a part of, uh, that's a process of maturity, right? Um, We mature based on experiences, social interactions. But if you don't have any of that, your mind is still going to be when you're 26, 27 years old uh, because you didn't really get to experience any type of situations or social situations that would have you um, grow and learn from. I think that's one of the things um, that really affected me as well as being able to communicate with other people um, in the social environment, being in large groups, um, having people within close proximity of me that I don't know. Um, And just in dealing with all of everything out here, once you're released, it's like they don't give you no job, they don't give you no housing, you're on your own, and having no type of education or any type of, uh, you know, rehabilitation tools. It's extremely difficult.
0: For those of you who've just tuned in, you're listening to Ask a Leader on radio, KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine, streaming on the web all over the world at KUCI.org, and we're, we've got a, every single social media kind of handle with KUCI in it. My guest, most importantly here, joining me is Michael Saavedro who was detained in solitary confinement for 12 consecutive years, mainly in the Pelican Bay Prison. And we're talking about how solitary so many years has affected him. I guess um, in I, I want to roll it back a little bit in the time frame and you were talking about how you were able, to, you got out of that solitary setting. For uh, uh, momentarily, but not really getting out of it. With Kermit Ryder's book on the cover of that are pictures of what you did. All you didn't have a regular. You said you left school in uh, middle school, but your education was in a telephone booth-sized cage that you you did all your research in.
3: Yes, yes, and in the library there was very. Um, uh, It was inadequate Yeah, Um, because for a person trying to do, you know, trying to do research and trying to um, basically litigate or appeal his case himself, um, first and foremost, the law is very complex. Um, It's like a foreign language if you don't know it. And if you don't know where to go, you don't know where to look. It's even more difficult. But what made things even worse was the fact that the prison law library most of the books were outdated. Um, pages are always missing, um, you only get one hour. Um,
0: one hour out of a day or out of a week?
3: Out of, out of the week, yes. One hour um, a
0: week of study.
3: Yes, unless you can prove that you have a court deadline within 30 days, then you will get two hours a week. A week. Which really is nothing. And then um, they also have restrictions on photocopying. and I mean, to sit there and take notes of all this case law, writing all these things down because they won't give you copies of the cases to take back to yourself so you can try to piece together your argument or your pleading. Um, it, it was very difficult. Um, but it also opened up my eyes. And um, really, I, in reading these different prisoners' cases that won and were able to set the standard for due process, like Wolf versus McDonald, a U.S. Supreme Court case, Okay. Um, Madrid versus Goldman. How they even talked about, you know, Pelican Bay when it first opened up. They thought it was inhumane, but the courts never really looked at it. In the long-term perspective, those cases were new. Those the Pelican Bay had just opened in 1990. Maybe they were, you know, there for like three years, but there were no studies done on, um, you know, keeping people confined in such conditions for decades. Um, now you have all the research. now you have you know all the studies that show um that it is very detrimental and it doesn't rehabilitate people. and in fact, once they released everybody, their whole guise was keeping people in solitary confinement because of the gang situation and violence. But when they released everybody out of the um out of the solitary confinement units in twenty sixteen. The levels of um, violence were reduced. In yes. fact, and assaults on staff, et cetera, were greatly reduced. So that just kind of put their whole reasoning um, in, shot, in the that, gutter.
0: Exactly. So i I want for people to understand uh, the. In, in, in I hate to say this in short order from you, though the, the phenomenal hunger strikes that were launched twenty. 11 and 2013 if you can briefly say so we can get into some of the grassroots activities as we close the interview but tell us what was involved and it must have been an enormous kind of uplift to see a coalescing go on in uh, in so many prisons around the country what was that like michael
3: well to be honest at first when you're sitting in a cell i mean um So just the story behind the little background is, you know, we were trying to fight all these cases going by, you know, going through the courts and trying to overturn this this, uh, very oppressive and um, lack of due process um, system of keeping people in solitary confinement for decades in the courts. Most of the time, are are very. Um, they would give due difference to the prison system, so they would not help very much at all. Um, it's very difficult to win anything in the courts, especially when you're improper as a prisoner. So you know, people who are are have been in there a long time and have studied other you know other organizations and other um, people who've. Um, try to do movements and try to change things. Um, one way was to do something that is not violent, um, a nonviolent movement like a hunger strike, so that they can't say, oh, because if we did something like they did in Attica, hold hostages and ask for media attention, then they could say, oh, you're being violent. This is why we need to use force against them. So a hunger strike was a wonderful idea to come up with, even though. On the individual it's very extremely difficult especially when you're already receiving a minimal amount of food um they just give you enough calories to survive so but in the process when when i was involved in it um i was sitting in the cell so i had no idea we would hear things but we would hear things you know communication takes a minute um it's not like right away on a cell phone okay we receive information that this yard is doing it this prison is doing it but eventually and through other organizations um, like California Prison Focus, who sent out lawyers to come and visit us during the hunger strikes and make sure that we're being treated humanely. humanity. Because one thing, they did not like the hunger strikes, and they went to extreme measures to try to provoke and prevent it. But once we heard that the movement caught on and, and other prisons were doing it, um, it gave me a lot of hope personally wow. and um, they may not even want to go further. Yes. But then when we started hearing that outside, people started hearing about it, and they were protesting outside these prisons, and they were protesting in Sacramento and San Diego and Los Angeles, and it just even gave us more hope. Like, yeah, you know, this is huge. People are hearing us. They're they're they're, they're supporting us even. And people like, um, you know, Sarah Short, who did a play about it, um, it was huge. It was huge to hear all these people um, supporting us, and then began the Senate committee hearings, um, which was even even more of a of a hope for us. Um, yeah, absolutely. It was it was very uh, uplifting to hear about that when you're at a time when you're feeling, you know, very depressed, sitting there starving yourself literally to death, and thinking that you know what this isn't working because they're not doing anything. They're not letting anybody out. Yeah, it was very uplifting to hear and to find out about all the public and and even other prisoners' support.
0: And I'm gonna shill Caramet Writer's book to fill in all of the details that we aren't gonna be able to cover in our limited time. Uh, her book's called "23-7 Pelican Bay Prison and the Rise of Long-Term." Solitary Confinement. It's published by Yale University Press. So as we draw down all the way with this interview, Michael Saavedra, I wanted you to give us a little update on where your Beyond the Bars fellowship and uh, affiliation is going. And you were mentioning that there, there will be meetings in October at UCLA and that you are helping institutionalize Underground Scholars, which will have a chapter, which has an apt chapter here now at UCI. What's the latest details so we can follow those organizations?
3: So in October every year now, um, last year was the first one for UCLA to hold um, a conference, a huge conference. Uh, It was called End of Mass Incarceration, where they have panels, they have um, formerly incarcerated people. I spoke on a panel regarding solitary confinement and uh just to to awaken society on these issues and, and just to continue the movement and the organizing of trying to end mass incarceration and the things that go on with immigration and, and you know, that's just a social justice movement that is so huge now. Um so in October it should be it will be at U C L A and um through that, I was connected with the Underground Scholars, which is a formerly incarcerated student group at UCLA, which I could never believe somebody like myself, um, formerly incarcerated, would ever be able to go to a prestigious school like UCLA. And the movement is huge. And they now have yes. a formerly incarcerated student group at UCI, um, also called the Underground Scholars, which is, is great. And we're trying to connect with at my school, which at Riverside City College, I just helped form a uh, formerly incarcerated student group there. So in October, we should be, in in fact, at UCI, they will be showing a film called From Incarceration to Education, and it's a film about some people who were formerly incarcerated and were able to get into college and went to Berkeley and graduated from Berkeley and are doing huge things, working on their master's degrees, their PhDs. and That's a very, very... um, motivating film, to say the least.
0: So we'll follow that, and I'll I'll make a point of announcing when I, my shows are near, the, will be all election coverage. And for, for, uh, Incidentally, I, are you able to vote now, Michael?
3: Because I'm on parole, I'm not allowed to not vote. Not yet. But, the,
0: but when you're off of parole at some point, then you are eligible to then uh, register to vote?
3: I believe so. I believe so. I'm not sure um, I haven't really looked into it because it's so, um, it's you know, it's, it's demeaning to be just to be in that status itself. It's yes. like you're re- you're free, but you're really not free. Um, I'm a citizen, but I'm not a citizen. I don't have citizens' rights, so that's why I don't like the term, you know, returning citizen, because I, I don't have the same rights as citizens. Um, I don't have the right to vote. I don't have the right to bear arms. I can't move across the country freely.
0: So, Michael, we have run completely out of time right now. I okay. I really appreciate your taking the time to be with us today. Thank you so much for being on Ask a Leader. Thank you. So I'm thanking uh, Michael Savedra. He is a was formerly detained in solitary confinement for, as I said, 12 consecutive years. I really do want that to sink in, everybody. So um, I want to thank um, him, and thank you all for listening. Uh, that's my wrap. Next week, returning to the show, will be Rick Hassan. He's going to weigh in with the Supreme Court nomination process now underway and how this last uh, Supreme Court session bodes for voting rights, all of our voting rights. Then my second guest will be Jack Cheevers of the Western States Medicare Medicaid Services, all in the name of protection, are their new improved cards and new advisories against scammers. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening.